Welcome back to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with James Freudigman, who's the co-owner and director of PMC Property Buyers based in Sydney and Brisbane. James has a valuation background, so we have a chat to him about his experience in valuation and how residential valuations are put together and the problems that property investors can come up against when they're having valuations done to redraw their equity. We also have a chat to him about how he helps his clients purchase good quality investments stock close to the Brisbane CBD uh, and the fundamentals that he looks for when selecting investment properties for his clients. Here's James. James Freudigman, thanks for joining us here on Gid for Growth. No worries, Mike. Good to be here. Beautiful. Now, I just wanted to kick off with uh, a little bit of an insight into to who is uh, James Fridge Magnet. Um, <laughs> who, who are you and, and what do you specialize in? Yeah, Mike, so uh, I'm one of the co-founders of PMC Property Buyers, so we're a, a buyer's agent company. Um, myself, personally, my background is property valuation, uh, project management and buyer's advocacy, so um, that's sort of what's led me to, I guess, where I am today and what I do. Um, but PMC is very much a, um, a quality property investment advice business, so yep. we run a buyer's agent business assisting owner-occupiers, residential investors and commercial investors uh, to go and buy property, um, but at the same time, if there's people there looking for advice on their existing portfolios, uh, if they're looking at ways to build a strategy towards wealth creation through property over the long term, um, we assist with that as well. So it's uh, it's very much a, a tailored advice business, um, but more so our focus is, I suppose, on the established property market as opposed to uh, a lot of companies that really focus on brand new or off the plan. Yep, and uh, we've certainly done a bit of uh, of off the plan uh, property spruker bashing on this podcast before, and <laughs> I definitely want to get into that, and and of course uh, a little bit more about what you do in your background. But um, so we can get a bit more of a taste of you, James. Um, what were the the posters on your bedroom wall as a youngster? Yeah, Mike, I'm a uh, I'm a pretty passionate uh, sporting supporter, so it doesn't right. uh, doesn't really matter too much about what sport it is. I've just been one of those uh, one of those kids that's fortunately grown up. Um, we had acreage, so I was always outside in the backyard or or uh, or running around the bush. So as a kid, I think um, biggest ones for me were people like I think I had a big uh, Alan Langer collage from the Brisbane Broncos back in the day, um, yep. and uh, and the old Mal Meninga that sort of thing, but. Um, yeah, mainly it was just sporting stars for me, mate. So the the war boys at cricket and people like Pete Sampras with the tennis and uh, and that sort of thing. So I'm probably uh, showing a little bit of my age here. Your younger <laughs> listeners probably don't know who those people are, um, but uh, that that was me pretty much to a T. Very much outdoors. Awesome. Caitlin in our office didn't know who Brian Adams was the other day. So it, it, it is a dire state of affairs, unfortunately. Um, so James, how did you get started in, in property and what was your first investment? Um, the way I got started in property, funnily enough, was just going through school. Um, as I said, I was just basically into sport. I didn't really um, worry too much about focusing on my schoolwork. Uh, but my, I basically got to year 12 and I sort of went, okay, I don't really know what I'm going to be doing after school. I was doing accounting and economics and things like that. But um, my grandfather actually owned a property valuation business and his background was commercial development. And yep. um, so being a uh, semi-ADD sort of child, um, <laughs> having to be active, can't sit behind a desk. Um, yeah, I, I basically went and just did some work experience with the valuation firm. And... Um, 
yeah, just really enjoyed it. You're out on the road, you're looking at properties, you're assessing values, you're, you're using, uh, I guess, all your calculation skills and, and I seem to have a, a pretty good, uh, I guess, handle on numbers and that sort of thing. So that, that became something that I went, yeah, I, I think I could really do this as a profession. So that's sort of how I ended up in, in the property space. I finished school and then enrolled into property economics at uni and uh, went through and did that course and worked as a value as assistant during that time. And then yep. once I finished uni, obviously went on from there. So, and but, what sort uh, of projects did you... Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'll, oh, yeah, I'll let you finish no, no, that you question. I was just going yeah, to say, what, then, sort of, what, sort of, um, what sort of projects did you work on um, as, as a value? Was it mostly sort of residential or did you do, do a commercial mix as well? Yeah, the, the first couple of years coming out of uni, uh, they sort of changed legislation. So you used to have to do your uni degree and then two years evaluation experience before you could start. Fortunately, when I finished uni, they changed it that as long as you'd already done two years experience, you could you could get registered. And I'd been working yep. the, the full three years at the valuation firm. Um, so they started me off with residential valuation. Um, so I did that for a period of about three and a half to four years. Um, and then gradually sort of went up into the prestige residential space with your riverfront, your your penthouse units and, and things like that. Um, and, and valuation is, it becomes a relatively, I guess, monotonous and repeat style business, Mike. It's it's very much same thing day in, day out. So yep. getting into the prestige was a good challenge of the mindset so you don't just sort of get into a bit of a rut. Um, and then from there, I started to go into uh, development valuation. So I did some um, discounted cash flow analysis of, of projects, um, a number of commercial warehouses, some office space and things like that. So yep. it was it was definitely a bit of a mix over the sort of seven years that I was actually working as a, as a pure valuer. Yeah, so you've got some good exposure to the different sort of valuation methodologies. Um, obviously, the, the commercial stuff's a bit different to, to the resi. Now, I don't want to interrupt this this question again. What, what was your first investment, James? Uh, yeah, so my first investment, Mike, um, was actually I was 22, so I just literally started valuing, and um, I I didn't have a lot of money, and I wanted to travel, so I bought a house um, out at Dolby, of all places, Dolby in Queensland, so it's about four hours west of Brisbane. Um, Funnily enough, was, I was I was there not that long ago. It's, oh, um, the, it's, the, it's, yeah. it's, it's a place where um, there are road trains and, and actual tumbleweeds, which was a surprise. Very much so. <laughs> so, and this is going back nearly fifteen years when I bought my first house there. So, um, there were all sorts of power stations that were going to be built there and that sort of thing. So, I, I remember the house pretty well. I paid, I think it was one hundred and fifty-three thousand. Wow. Um, it was a purple house um, of all things, which I probably wouldn't recommend to a lot of my clients these days to buy something that's purple. But at the end of the day, you can always repaint something to to change the street appeal. But um, it was a great little investment, 153 odd grand. I think it was renting for about 230 to $235 a week. So for me, not earning a lot of money um, first year out, out of uni, uh, it, was a, it was a great little starter for my portfolios. So with the interest rates, was it sort of cash flow positive or close at that time? Uh, yeah, it was, it was very close. I think it just sort of washed its face, Mike. I don't think it was, um, it definitely wasn't raking money in for me, uh, but it wasn't really costing me anything either. Um, it it already had a renovated kitchen and bathroom, so there was a bit of depreciation in it. So it was it was um, yeah, it was a good little investment for me. Uh, as a, Still as got a starter. it? No, no, I actually um, I sold it about five years later because I I had uh, a few sporting injuries and shoulder reconstructions, and um, decided I was going to quit my job and go travelling for twelve months. So 
I couldn't afford to do that without uh, selling my property. So um, cash in. Yeah, so how, how did how did you do as, as as an investment on that one? Did you get some good growth? Yeah, I did, Mike. It's I mean, you're starting on a pretty low base, so it's not too difficult to get growth out of a $150,000 property if you look at yeah. percentages. Um, but yeah, I, I sold that for I think it was about 230 to 240,000 somewhere in that range um, within nice. sort of five years. So it was. Probably went up by roughly fifty percent over that five years. So yeah, um, yeah, no, it worked out really well for me with that one. So you're off to a good start. Yeah, yeah, no, it gave me. Uh, it definitely, when I saw the the potential in it, and from the amount of money that I'd put in to buy it originally, which was pretty minimal, uh, yeah, it, it really sort of wet my appetite for it. Sort of going, well, if you can get these sorts of returns without it costing you a lot of money, well, there's got to be a bit more of an art to this as opposed to just sort of speculating a little bit more, because that was definitely. Um, being out at Dolby and I, I didn't live there I drove out there for about five or six weekends looking at properties and um, it was yeah I sort of went okay there's got to be something to this And but the returns I got out of it I was very happy with and, and that sort of really I guess set me up that when I came back from overseas I was going to get back into it again so. yeah and was that a, a bit of a catalyst for you moving from valuation into the to, to the buyer's agency uh, not really. At that stage, Mike, I didn't know buyers agents existed. Um, it, it was just, I, I came back from overseas, went back into valuation. I was only back in Vowels for about 18 months. Uh, and then I was actually approached by a company that said, look, we're a buyers agent company. We'd like you to come and work for us. And um, I came recommended through someone they knew or something like that. And um, that was my very first understanding that a buyers agent even existed. Uh, at that point, sort of six, seven years after I purchased it. So, um, yeah, uh, that, that was a bit of an eye-opener at that stage. But that was, as soon as I saw that business existed, uh, yeah, it definitely um, definitely got me pretty excited. And how does that valuation background sort of weigh into your day-to-day life now as a, as a buyer's agent when you're selecting properties for in, investors? It, it's it's got to be a real sort of leg up when you can look at something and, and run your calcs over it and make sure that you're, you're, you're buying it under market or at least not for a premium. Yeah, I guess one of, one of the major elements with our business, Mike, is ensuring that people aren't paying a premium for a property because very easy to let emotion get into the mix um, when with the valuation background and a couple of the other stuff we have here all valuers as well um, it's great we go through we run the numbers exactly as a bank valuer would um, so when we present to a client we can say look from a va- bank valuation background here's our summation approach of your land plus your improvements depreciated back to x value here's the comparison against other properties that have sold as a as a check method, uh, yeah, here's exactly where the value sits, and it's great because we get a lot of people talk about um, those automated valuation models. I think they I think that's what they call them, the the RP data where you can print out a yeah, yep. uh, whatever it is. Um, we get a lot of people coming to us with those, going, oh look, we've seen this, but the statistical analysis process, I suppose, hasn't hasn't been refined enough and I think it's you can't really blanket going well a three bedroom house in a suburb is going to be this um, because yeah. the quality and size varies so much so the, the valuation background's definitely been a, a something that a lot of our clients really value uh, and, and at the same time for us it's great we know that if we get a property under contract and then they go to their mortgage broker to get it valued um, we know that there's never going to be any problems or, or of getting that supported. 
Now, I do want to talk about you being a buyer's agent, but obviously we're in a, a nice position to, to get some inside tips from, from a valuation guy as well. So um, I've got a little bit of a valuation background, but obviously you've um, got plenty of runs on the board and have worked there for, for a number of years. On the residential side of things, the, presumably there, uh, you know, there's a number of different ways that you can value a property. You mentioned the summation method, which would be your land value plus your buildings and then the comparable so obviously what are comparable properties so what are if you're looking at a three-bedroom place what are three-bedroom places with the same number of car spaces sort of selling in in that area for are they the sort of main methods that you would utilize as a residential value or that a bank valuer would would do to to come up with the value and do they favor one over the other uh no so definitely they're the, they're the two methods that we use in residential valuation um, the banks don't particularly ask, so all, all the calculations we do with a land value, improvements value to get your total value of the property, um, in a bank valuation you do do a breakdown of land and improvements but they don't ask you to run out your rates per square metre. Um, yep. And the way we do it, and or the way I did it, which is probably a little bit more old school to the way some of the valuers do it nowadays, but my method was always we ran it out at a brand new construction cost. So in today's yep. market, what's it going to cost to build that property? And then based on the age and condition of the property, we would then depreciate that value back to where we saw the current value of the improvements, add that to the land value, and, and there we go. Uh, a lot of the valuers nowadays run it out at an already depreciated rate. Um, right. And then, and then to do a replacement insurance value, they'll obviously um, rerun it out at a brand new value. So um, that's... The, the primary method to determine the valuation and then we look at the market sales evidence for within the last three months uh, but it's it, it can be tough I mean there's unique properties in every suburb so to do mm. an analysis on on a Tudor style home where you've got everything else that might be a, a timber home is going to be very difficult to provide that that comparison exactly um, so there's there's a there's an element of um, of I guess educated decision making um, but there's also you've got that summation approach which provides the support for it and is there ever a, a capitalization <clears throat> pardon me a capitalization style approach where you're looking at what the rental income is and applying sort of multiples on that or is that more of a commercial sort of thing yeah more in the commercial space Mike so that's that's very much done on on all your commercial investments uh, it, it does get done occasionally on a for instance like a block of flats uh, you might run it out with a uh, capitalization approach because flats are more being purchased from a cash flow model as opposed to the, the actual uh, bricks and mortar side of it um, yep. but in the residential space not so much all right so let's talk about uh, buyers advocacy so you are a, a, a buyers agent that's your day-to-day -day now at, uh, at PMC property buyers what, what are some of the the main mistakes that you see property investors make that either are coming through and they have a different mindset or you can see properties that they've purchased uh, outside of using an, an expert what, what what sort of things do you see James yeah there's probably a couple there Mike the the biggest one that we see a lot of people doing when they're going out, especially if they're buying an investment, obviously homes are a little bit different, but when they're buying an investment, a lot of people just purely go, what is it right now? I'm just gonna invest for now. Um, they're not really looking forward going, okay, well in five years or 10 years or 15 years, what's who's gonna be wanting to buy this property or is this gonna be in an area where in 10 or 15 years time, it's, it's going to be in demand? Um, yep. 
so a perfect example would be in a, in a greenfield estate where you might be 40 or 50 kilometers out of the city and you've got all the new house and land packages if you haven't got any great transport infrastructure to get into a major employment hub like i.e. the city or any of the other suburban uh, employment hubs then long term 10 or 15 years time i mean traffic right now is pretty bad so i can only imagine what it's going to be in 10 or 15 years so is that going to be an area where people are going to want to live in 10 or 15 years time you'd have to say well if you can be in an area where you can get to work in five or ten minutes with pretty low maintenance or you can get there in 45 minutes in low maintenance and, and the property's still low maintenance you probably going to be favoring the the one that's a heck of a lot closer um so that's probably one is people are just purely looking at the here and now not looking in the future um yep. and and the other one is very much just looking purely at the the glossy brochure uh, as right. you were saying you sort of uh, i guess bashed around a few property spruikers and i, I definitely think and and at pmc most of our staff feel the same there's definitely new property is not something that we'd necessarily say new property is bad um, but particular areas or estates or high-rise unit blocks may not be the ideal investment but there's definitely still we believe a position for new property within a healthy portfolio Um, but a lot of people do look at it purely on that cash flow they go oh great well it's only going to cost me a hundred dollars a week or something like that as opposed to an established home in a better area might be costing them two hundred dollars a week um, but they're just purely looking at the cash flow they're not looking at where's the value of this property going to be in the future is this something that appeals to owner occupiers as well as investors or is it just purely an investor driven property so they're probably the two uh, i guess biggest mistakes we see from people going and doing it themselves um from buyers agents i guess it's same as every industry i suppose mike you've got good you've got bad you've got in the middle it's it's uh, it's a it's a big world out there um probably the the one thing that we do see uh, from a number of buyers agent firms, and this is where we try to be a bit different. But buying in a, if you have a client come to you that's got a budget that's slightly below where you believe you can get into a really good area, a lot of companies will go, well, let's just push out an extra suburb or an extra two suburbs. Um, yeah. And and I think that gets you into dangerous territory if you haven't done your research on that particular suburb and the pockets within those suburbs. Uh, I think you can you can end up making a bad investment even using a professional advisor so um i guess we sort of take a bit of a different approach with that and say well if a client doesn't have the budget that gets them into the blue chip area close to the cbd what other areas are still low risk areas that we could invest in for clients rather than just going oh we'll just go the next suburb out for the sake of it so yeah yeah. they're probably the three three majors and I guess there is a, a disincentive to say to someone, you know, you, you might need to save a little bit more because there are no other suburbs that are a little bit cheaper that are, are of good value at, at the time. I've certainly heard of, of real estate agents saying, look, you really need to do a, a renovation on your bathroom before we pro- put the property on the market to, to get a great sale. And it, it is a little bit unusual because you send someone away, there's a greater chance that they're not sort of going to come back to you, isn't it? But there's that, that ethical side of if you're, you're trying to do the best for them then you've got to take that into consideration yeah absolutely mike i think it's a lot of businesses i guess we're fortunate we've got a property management arm as part of our business as well um and that was sort of developed because of the uh, i guess lack of quality service in that industry space but and so that provides us with stability of income for the business so we don't have to get a deal done um, for every client within a week or two just to keep our revenue stream going our job is to get the best quality investment we can possibly find for that client. If that takes 
three months versus three weeks, well, we'd rather take the three months because it's a long-term investment. So, um, but you're absolutely right. There's there's definitely that ethical element where we have to say to a client, look, we don't think you're going to be able to get into a quality area. Come back to us when you've got another twenty thousand or thirty thousand or whatever. So. Yeah, whereas there'll be plenty of, of, of glossy brochure-wielding spruikers that, that will be happy to take their money. Um, let, let's have a, a chat about those those newer properties. Brisbane was sort of in the media, you know, a year or so ago as the next sort of boom, uh, boom suburb or, or boom area. It hasn't really materialised in the way that it was sort of predicted. Is, is that sort of dragged down by potential oversupply with the unit market in the CBD? Because I, I do know that there are some suburbs in Brisbane that are performing really, really well right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mike. So I'll probably just preface this. So we've got obviously a Brisbane office and a Sydney office. Um, yep. So I'm obviously based in our Brisbane one. Um, the You're absolutely right. The unit market in Brisbane for a few years, there's been talk of oversupply or for a few 12 months maybe or so, they've really started to put it out there in the media saying there's going to be an oversupply and that sort of thing. Uh, we stopped buying units nearly three years ago for clients, stopped recommending them. We saw there was a little bit of writing on the wall at that stage. Uh, I think fortunately, I mean, good and bad, I suppose, with everything, but fortunately that the media has now actually come out over the last 12 months or so to say that it looks like there's going to be an oversupply. And it appears that with that combined with the banks tightening up on the lending and the foreign investment being, I guess, curved a little bit more with increased stamp duty, etc., um, we've actually sort of seen that semi-self-correcting. Uh, so a lot of projects that were approved and expected to then be built aren't actually going ahead. Right, so, the margins aren't um, there for the developers anymore. That's right. Or they might be developers that have had other projects and realised at the end a lot of these people aren't actually settling, um, so they could get stuck with their product at the end. So um, I think it's it's a good thing that that's sort of semi-self-correcting. I still definitely think there's an oversupply and we've seen a little bit of pressure on the rental market uh, and I think we'll probably see that for maybe another six to nine months um, and then it might ease up a little bit. Uh, but I think given the correction that's gone on, I don't think we're going to have a five to seven year period before we're going to soak up the supply. I think that's probably come back to maybe three, three and a half years. So okay. I think if you've, if you've got residential units currently uh, I don't expect you're going to see a lot of upside in that for probably three to five years um, but at the same to- same time we've already had a pretty big drop in that uh, in the values of those units over the last six to 12 months uh, and I think it's sort of at that stage where within the next six months or so it'll probably level out a little bit more um, and, and we'll probably see the bottom of where they're going um, that unit market is a very different market to the housing market I think um, the statistics for Brisbane, I think, were something like three and a half percent last year uh, across the board. Um, but it's like anything. You look at some suburbs in Sydney that have probably done 30% in a year, but the average for Sydney might be 12, which is still phenomenal growth. But yeah. in Brisbane, it's it's the same sort of situation where you've sort of got Brisbane's, I guess, 50-kilometre radius from the CBD is really what encompasses Brisbane. Um, yep. And so you've got a pretty broad spectrum of, of where you can go uh, to to determine all your stats but most of the established houses we're buying are sort of within that 7 to 12 kilometer ring of the CBD uh, yeah. and over the last couple of years we've probably seen the the prices move there by between 15 to 20 percent combined over the two years so averaging sort of somewhere between 7 and 10 um, per year for the last couple of years so 
it's very good sustainable growth it's not the heated uh, investor driven market that sydney really has been over the last few years yeah, but it's had... probably double the the national average, isn't it? And and I guess you're in a a little bit of a less risk adverse market. You might be able to chase you know fifty percent growth going to mining locations, but um, you've got a long term performing asset there, haven't you? Absolutely, and and the fortunate position I suppose for Brisbane because it hasn't had a, a spike the way Sydney and Melbourne have. The the rental yields are still reasonably strong, uh, yep. so you can take. A percent less in growth if you're getting a percent higher in your cash flow it sort of provides a reasonable balance so um, I think that gives Brisbane security going forward I don't think we're going to see Brisbane booming I know there's a lot of people say oh well Sydney and, Mar- Sydney and Melbourne have charged so now Brisbane's going to charge next I don't believe that's the case uh, I believe we'll still have pretty stable consistent growth um, but until employment growth uh, really starts to climb I can't see us having uh, growth of consistently 10 plus percent the way Sydney and Melbourne have over the last sort of three to five years. Yeah and there's 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 real scarcity issues with the Sydney market as well there's obviously a lot of demand in the city and there's only a certain number of directions that the expansion can sort of go in. Um, is there obviously you've got offices in in Sydney and Brisbane is 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 Brisbane where you're doing most of the purchasing for investors at the moment is that where you're seeing the best value? Uh, yeah, sort of two markets, Mike. Uh, Brisbane's definitely where we're seeing uh, some reasonable value for investors with the balance of cash flow and growth. Um, the other market we do a reasonable amount of buying in is uh, actually well, your, your hometown, Newcastle. So right. um, one of our buyers agents grew up there. She's actually moving back there in January, but she commutes from Sydney two or three times a week to go and look at properties. So um, the, the Newcastle markets, was, is, as you're aware, I'm sure, Mike, has done reasonably well over the last four or five years as well. It's had a, a really good sort of piggyback off Sydney. But yeah, um, yeah Brisbane and, and Newcastle are where we see uh, still reasonable buying opportunities where you're not in that frenzied pace uh, the way Sydney has been. Um, but at the same time, quite a good balance of that cash flow and growth. And if we stay pretty consistent and selective with the suburbs and property types that we buy in, then we're pretty confident that long-term clients will get uh, get a good overall investment result. Awesome. So what, what sort of areas, what sort of suburbs are, are representing good value in, in Brisbane and Newcastle? Where have you sort of been active over the last few years, if you don't mind giving away some of your secret herbs and spices? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. I think our markets seem to change every six months or so so we won't just buy in the same suburb all day every day every year um yep. because obviously as the, as the markets move and you start to see one market get a little bit overheated we go well we don't want to be in that suburb anymore that's that's really getting into premium territory um but the consistent performers that we've seen uh, i guess in around brisbane um is a place like green slopes which is about sort of three and a half to five kilometers from brisbane cbd on the south side um yep relatively small suburb, very close to employment hubs with multiple hospitals, easy access into the CBD, uh, to sporting locations, things like that. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a really good performing housing market for us, um, as has Cooparoo, which is probably the next suburb out, uh, or one and a half suburbs out from Greenslopes. Uh, again, really good market, a lot of character style homes. Um, there is a lot of unit development going on in a couple of pockets of Cooparoo right now, um, but the housing market is still in, in very, very strong demand. So those, yep. those two areas on the south side and, and a place called Holland Park, which is then if, if a client had a lower budget, we would have pushed further out to Holland Park. That's more yep. around your 8 to 10K ring. So those three have been, been very good long-term performers. Um, 
and, and nice and consistent as well. And then if we sort of move around over to the north side, a couple of suburbs like Mitchelton uh, and Inogra um, have been actually some really good performers for us. They're, they're a, I guess, a more affordable market than if you move within that five kilometre radius. Um, so yeah. houses have been there over the last few years, sort of between sort of 500 and 7, 750. They're now sort of getting towards the upper end of that market. But uh, still, I still genuinely believe you've got shopping centres there, you've got train lines into the CBD within 15-minute commute, that sort of thing. I, I still think long-term they'll continue to perform. And how, how important are the sort of transport connections into the city for property investment? Obviously, you're looking in that sort of 7 to 10K range of the CBD. Is that really just because, I guess, there's a, there's a point at which the commute gets over a certain number of minutes and the desire to live in that suburb goes down sort of exponentially? Uh, yeah, to an extent, Mike, I guess we do some buying um, sort of 35 kilometres from Brisbane CBD as well. So as I was saying, where some companies will just push out one suburb, we probably take a different approach and we, we've actually made a jump out to another precinct that's on the water, um, yep. but still very well connected to employment hubs in the CBD. So, uh, But I think the transport nodes are definitely, as I said earlier, traffic is something that a lot of people get very frustrated with um, yep. and it's getting worse day by day. Um, so long term, I think we've still got to make sure we're probably within, if, you, if you're going to be in a suburb that's further from the city, you probably still want to be within a five minute walk from one of the major transport uh, access routes into the city um, yep. so that you're not having to drive your car for 10 minutes just to park it to then get onto public transport and go from there. So uh, I, I think from that perspective, transport's very important. Um, for everything we do, it's really three E's and a T. So it's close to education, close to employment, close to entertainment. And close to transport, so that's really our, I guess, core Three fundamentals. Three and a T, I, I love it. Yeah, so that's our, that's our, I guess, initial check when we do the macro elements of an area as to whether we're going to invest there, and then from yep. there we can delve into the micro details of the property and the street and things like that. Yeah, okay. And and how much how much difference does the the street make? I, I was chatting to to someone recently, and they're basically saying that the getting the right streets within a certain suburb can make a a twenty percent difference in in capital growth. I, I, is it really important to pinpoint that? Because we when we have the conversation about you know hot spots or booming suburbs, we're talking about the suburbs, but not all streets are created created equal because of their proximity to to public housing to to transport nodes or, or just being a dodgy street you know does that make a big difference to to the the capital gains and 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 if so how do you how do you find those pockets uh it, it definitely makes a bit of a difference mike i guess the old philosophy of the worst house in the best street um i, I don't necessarily 100 percent agree with i think if you buy the worst house well you could have a maintenance nightmare but um <laughs> yeah. but uh, I, I definitely think there's pockets within a suburb so um there's always going to be one or two, I guess, prestige streets in a suburb. Um, yep. And if you can get in there, I don't. I think a major growth difference compared to the rest of the suburb um, isn't likely to occur because otherwise you end up with a huge disparity of the same house two streets apart. And I think yep. people, it, it would reach that point where people go, well, it's not really worth me paying a bit more just to be on that street. Um, yep. A I'll couple of the, two streets back and get a yeah, pool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly for the for the same sort of money. So, yep. um, I think there's a couple of elements that really come into it, though. I think if you can go down a street and you can see it's nice and wide, it's it's a, a nice green street. You've got quite a number of renovated homes in that property in that street already. Then you're in an area where 
you know an owner occupier is going to drive down that street and go i really like this i want to be here um so i think it's more the appeal of having that quality street that is going to enhance your marketability of a property and probably mean you'll get a slight premium but you'll also be able to sell it in a good market or a bad market whereas if you're in a street that doesn't appeal very well there's a lot of rundown homes there's public housing or there's a mix of unit blocks and houses and things like that um, in a quiet market that's going to be much more difficult to sell than something that's in a beautiful street so uh, I think that and your aspect of the property whether you're north facing versus west facing and and things like that again are are things that owner occupiers really look at yeah now I obviously want to go even deeper into your your special sauce. I lo- love to give uh, some some good tips to people if I can. We've got the three E's in the T's. We're we're obviously looking in that sort of seven to to ten k ring. I'm guessing because there are supply constraints, there's not so many things that can come onto the market. Are, are there any other sort of tips and tricks that you you have? I mean, as a as a valuer, people would be sort of asking the questions. Well, you know, if you if you're buying a four bedroom house, then you have to stick to four bed bedroom comparables are there are there any other sort of things that you look at for for creating sort of instant equity or or anything like that yeah i think (laughs) probably the hardest part about our job is the amount of renovation shows and home buying australia and all these shows that just go oh look you can buy for this you can spend this and you can make this um that's yeah it's it's probably all well and good to to make it look like that but if you're paying a professional to do it all so if you're paying someone to buy the property paying for someone to project manage it for you paying for someone to sell it etc by the time you factor in all your costs you're probably not really going to come out ahead um, if the market's relatively stagnant Um, so but I guess some of the areas where we see uh, I guess ability to add value not only to the capital value of the property, but for your rental appeal, if it's going to be an investment property as well. Um, number one is looking to create an ensuite. So a lot of the old homes in Brisbane, Colonials or Queenslanders might have an enclosed veranda that we can convert into an ensuite off a, right. off a master bedroom. Um, so it's quite cost effective. And because these are timber homes that aren't sitting slab on ground, it's very easy to access your plumbing. So it's a much cheaper way to do a bathroom. Um, mm. So creating an ensuite makes it appealing for owner-occupiers, it's appealing for tenants, um, and generally your return where you might spend $15,000 on an ensuite, you might get an extra $50 a week. So as a return on your investment, it's, it's very strong. Um, yeah. And the, the second one that I think uh, a lot of people overlook, because uh, everyone just focuses purely on the house, is your landscaping and fencing. Um, you can change the full appeal of a property um, by doing some really good yard work. I think people can walk around and go, this just presents beautifully from the street. And regardless of what sort of condition the house is in internally, that very first impression and the very last impression when they turn around when they get back down on the road is, wow, this looks beautiful. Um, So I think they're the two, from a cost-effective perspective, um, I think they're probably two of the, the quickest ways to add value to your property or add appeal to it. Awesome. I think that's yeah, some some great advice, especially the the ensuite tip there. I guess there'll be a lot of property investors sort of listening, saying, you know, I'm buying a property and I'm going to hold it for 20 years. What do I care about the owner occupier appeal until I'm actually looking at selling it when I'm in retirement mode? But I'm guessing the appeal is important because at the end of the day, the cash flow relies on a good 
good rental yield, so the tenant's got to be attracted by the property. But also there's those uh, valuers coming in that are pretty key to sort of withdrawing equity and investing again. They're, they're going to want that owner-occupier uh, appeal to, to sort of get the better valuations. Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely, Mike. I guess we with our property management business, I guess we've really learned that the old school mentality of just buy a house and just leave it sit and rot because it's just an investment property or it's just for tenants is, is really gone now. Tenants are far more selective about what property they're going to go for. Um, so they want to have the air conditioning in the master bedroom. They want to have a nice deck. They want to have open plan, etc. So if you don't maintain your property well, um, you're going to find it's going to sit vacant for a lot longer than something that has been maintained well, or you're going to have to take a pretty good hit on your cash flow. Um, yep. So that's probably number one. The second thing is, as you said, from the valuation perspective, they're the ones that at the end of the day, if you want equity, you need your valuer to support it. It doesn't matter who else tells you how great it is. It's going to come down to the valuer at the end of the day. Um, no disrespect to valuers because I think they, they do a very good job and they, they get worked pretty hard by the banks. But... Um, they're not keen to sort of support something if it doesn't look appealing and doesn't look secure. Um, so if your property presents really well, the valuers are in and out of, the people have to remember, they're in and out of probably between eight and 12 houses a day, all day, every day. So right. if you want to make a bit of a lasting impression or you want to get a, a good supported valuation on yours, you need to make your property look good so that they remember it. They walk in, they get there exactly like an owner-occupier does or you if you were going to go and rent a house. You want to walk up and go, this looks really nice. And a valuer's mentality is exactly the same. Um, so if it's touch and go on five or $10,000, if they go, it presented really well, I'm be pretty confident that's going to stack up when a, a sale goes through, um, then they'll, they'll be more likely to be a little bit more flexible. Yep. And a bottle of wine, a cup of coffee, any other <laughs> tips to increasing these valuations, James? Uh, I'm concerned if your valuer takes it. Uh, it's probably <laughs> number one on that. Um, but probably just keep it minimalist. Like a lot of the valuers, because they are busy, they don't want to stand around and have a chat. So um, probably the biggest thing to do is not like if you want to uh, give them some information about a couple of sales that have gone on, you're better off just going, look, guys, there's two sales around the street. I know they've just gone un under contract. Here's the details of them is yep. probably the best way to do it as opposed to trying to have a big conversation because um, a lot of them do do that job because they don't like chatting with a lot of people they're very much keep to themselves kind of people um yeah. so the the less you can disrupt their time um probably the better lasting impression they're going to have of you and and more likely going to assist you yeah so don't sort of ear bash them with i think this place is worth you know 50 times what you're probably going to write on that piece of paper because of xyz but if you can say you know, I know that you're looking at comparable sales. These ones might not pop up, but I, I know from the agent they've gone unconditional and these were the prices. I've printed it out for you. I won't talk to you any more than that. I apologize for existing. That's probably the best approach. <laughs> That's pretty much spot on, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So one, let, I just want to bash valuers once more if I can. Um, I don't know how many of them listen to the show and there might not be any after this. But one thing that um, is a little bit perplexing is that uh, you, you purchase a property or you go to purchase a property and you're getting you know bank finance, a valuer comes in and sometimes you'll pay for it, other, other times it's sort of rolled into the package. But every single time that's, that's happened to me, the valuation comes back at the exact agreed purchase price. Now, what's going on there? Yeah, I think the the banks very much because what a lot of people think is that the valuers work for the banks, um, yeah. but they actually don't. All the valuers are in uh, private, privately owned firms. They're not owned by the bank. They just have 
contracts with the bank to do valuations in particular areas. Yeah. So if you get a contract that comes through, it might be a random figure, it might be $712,000 and you think you've got yourself a steal by 20 grand. Um, there's no value for the bit for the valuer or no interest in the valuer to put in anything higher than the contract value. If it looks like it's a 10% difference, then that might be a little bit different. The valuer will then sort of look to support close to a higher figure. But if it's within probably a 5% uh, variance of where they see they've done their figures and it would stack up, then they'll support the contract price. Yeah, because they're not going to want to put their insurance on the line. Um, absolutely. Unnecessarily, the, I guess. What, what we do find, though, uh, from a valuation perspective, and it mainly only happens in a hotly rising market or just as a market comes over the top and, and starts to plateau or, or decline, uh, and this is where a few people in Sydney could be at risk if they're still paying premium money at the moment as it's come off the boil a little bit, um, you'll, you may find that if you're right at the top end of the value range of where, where it looks like it's going to be supported, if a valuer doesn't have enough evidence to support that, they won't just miss it by five or ten thousand dollars. They'll probably pull it back to a much more comfortable valuation range, which might be end up knocking it by five percent to eight percent. Right. Now, I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong there because they're still doing it within the valuation range from all their calculations and the sales evidence. But if it's looking very, very top end or top heavy for the value, um, they're more than likely going to pull it back a little bit further for protection. Um, yep. So that's and that's where I think a lot of people go. Oh, valuers are just so conservative, but it, it's really not. It's more it's more a protection exercise where they know that if there's five offers on a property and four are around one figure and one person's twenty five grand higher, well, that person's not paying market value. The other four people that were around the same figure, that's where the value sits. So that's sort and of where is, that element comes there, in. I guess there is a, a difference between the highest possible price you can achieve in a marketing campaign to say a, a bank taking possession of a property and you know going to auction with a sort of a fairly minimal campaign. There, there could be a, a big variance in, in what someone would be able to achieve if they're happy to sort of sit on the market for a number of months. Is that, is that, does that sort of factor into that as well? Yeah, absolutely. My, I, I don't think the value is will so much think about the the difference between a, a current marketing campaign or a bank bank campaign in the future i think it's more them just going well if i know there's multiple offers and everything's similar um and there's an outlier there well that's obviously someone who's pretty passionate and emotional about that property but it's not indicative of the majority of the market so we'll, we'll stick with the other end but I, I think you're exactly right if you're in a if the market cools at all, that change in price from that emotional buyer will probably stop pretty quickly. Um, and and so if the if anything goes wrong in 12 months, two years, three years, um, the valuers can be held liable for up to seven years from from the date of the valuation. So they've they've right. got a pretty long exposure period. Yeah, excellent. So um, well, yeah, <laughs> excellent is probably not the right word. But let's get back to um, to purchasing investment property. Obviously, there's there's been some changes with uh, interest only loans. The banks are not sort of as favourable on those. Uh, there's been some changes with with APRA, of course. H how is that affecting demand in in your space? And and what's the general demand for investment properties in the suburbs that you're active in at the moment? Is there a, a reasonable sort of uptick? In owner occupier or first home buyers, or is there quite a bit of competition still, despite the changes? Uh, yeah, despite the changes, there is still quite a bit of competition, Mike. I guess Brisbane 
the market here is very much driven by owner occupiers. It's not a hot investment market the way the Sydney market has been. Yeah. Um, so, which provides much more balance. So, stock levels are definitely down. They're down probably 30 to 40 percent on last year. Um, some suburbs are down even as far as 50 percent on last year. So, normally you would say, okay, well, if stock levels come down that far, prices are going to absolutely charge. But that's just when you've got emotionally charged people that are wanting to get into a market and not miss out. When we're dealing with the owner-occupier space, they're still very calculated of saying, well, yes, I, I like that property, but I'm not going to pay that sort of money for it. So yep. um, it's still a much more balanced market. Um, and, and I think it'll probably continue that way for a little while. Now, let us know a little bit about what you do at, at PMC. So so a bit about, obviously, your methodology we've sort of dug into, but, but what, why should property investors work with, with, with your company and especially with a buyer's agent in general rather than doing their own sort of DIY investing? Yeah, look, it's uh, it really does come down to, uh, I guess, personal preference, Mike, um, and probably affordability. There's obviously a fee associated with what a buyer's agent does. Um, I guess... Our, our real, I guess, focus for all of our clients is hopefully they're going to be portfolio builders. So not necessarily going to 10 properties or anything like that, but getting the fundamentals right in the first property. So then they've got a good base level to build on from there. Um, I guess where our passion for property investment has come from is really seeing the capacity of leverage and and the capacity more of your return on your own personal investment because essentially you buy and let's just use some really round figures you buy a million dollar property and you put in 10% yourself if that property goes up by 5% each year so you're getting a $50,000 return each year on a $100,000 investment it's a pretty phenomenal return when you look at it on your own personal investment um, mm. even if you take out negative gearing it's still a very good return um, return on the overall investment of the property is five odd percent but the return on your own personal investment is obviously significant higher so that's where we really see the power and that's what's driven our passion with property um, but where we've sort of I guess taken it uh, a little bit differently to just going great well it's shotgun approach and just go everywhere um, it's really looking at not so much just going just get a property get someone into the market get them in a property and, and off they go it's really saying what are you trying to achieve personally is it cash flow is it depreciation is it you want to invest for seven years and you want to sell it and you want to put your kids through private school from the proceeds uh, are you a 20-year investor are you a portfolio builder are you pure capital growth and you're high income so you don't want to worry about the cash flow it's every property investment journey for every different person is different and it needs to be different because not everyone has the same capacity so for us it's really understanding a personal situation working out what they're trying to achieve from that investment what's affordable for them uh, in terms of servicing as well as uh, initial purchase budget and then from there saying based on that these are the areas that we believe here's our research behind why we believe these areas this is the type of property and here's why we believe this type of property and then if the clients in agreement to that then that's what we obviously then go out there and find so part of the other value in what we do is one it's essentially we're a project manager for the whole process um, yep. we're, we're doing it from the very first brief all the way through to settlement handover of keys and everything so we're basically taking a lot of the stress out of it 
we're looking at properties day in, day out. So we're there six days a week looking at properties. Uh, we do probably about between 40 and 42% of the purchases that we do across both our offices um, are off market. So if you're wow. just out there looking on weekends, um, you genuinely would not see majority of these opportunities that we end up buying um, or half of the properties we end up buying. So it really does open up the opportunities for a client um, one, to get into areas where they may not be as familiar. Um, two, to be getting the right type of property that fits with their own personal strategy rather than just sort of going, oh, well, I've read a couple of property magazines I should buy in Gladstone or something like that. Um, yeah. And three is really the valuation background for us is a big one for a lot of clients. The due diligence we go to on a property, including things like public housing searches, nearby development applications, zoning changes, pipes over your site, um, caveats, easements, restrictions, etc., etc. There's a lot of other things that we look at that most investors wouldn't look at, and that's yes. been a refined process over a period of sort of ten plus years as well. So, um, yeah, that's that's sort of I guess where we see the value that we can bring to a client, and then being an ongoing sort of sounding board for them as well. It's a pretty strong pitch, James. I've I've got to say, <laughs> um, you you mentioned off market transactions being what was the figure forty two percent of of what you do. That's um that's a that firstly that's a huge percentage, but I, I want to find out what is the reason these properties are for sale off market, and and what sort of deals can you get on these properties that, um I guess are, are you're you're purchasing below what the potential market value would be. Yeah, I think Mike, a lot of people do say, oh, you're buying an off market property, um, great, you you're going to get yourself a steal, but it's not necessarily the case, um. The, the reason we get a lot of them is real estate agents know that our clients have a finance pre-approval because we get all our clients to do that before we start searching. Yep. Um, so they know that if it ends up under contract, they know one, we're valuers from background, so we're not going to be paying a premium. Um, but two, they know that the finance is already there, it's going to go through. Whereas most buyers coming through an open home, the, the real estate agent won't know what their pre-approval is or any insight into their background. Yep. Um, so they know that if, if they sell it to us, then they know that it's likely going to go through. Yes, there'll be some challenges with building and pest. If there's anything there, we'll go back and renegotiate and push them pretty hard. But they know that finance-wise is all okay. So they'll bring us a lot of opportunities before they go to the market. Um, I guess the benefits for the off-market is, one is you're not in as much competition. So where we might say it's worth $700,000, we might have to pay $700,000. But if it went to the open market, we know that due to limited supply or due to the position it's in or whatever elements of that property, we know it's going to end up in a multiple offer situation and it's going to go beyond 700000 So yeah. it's it's that benefit that you're just getting access to the property without that competition in the rest of the market. Um, why people are actually doing it off market? Um, there's all sorts of different reasons. So we deal with um, people getting divorced and they just want to do it quietly. They don't want everyone else to know what's going on. We get um, right. elderly people that are just, they just don't want people coming through their house all day, every day. Um, we get, um, what else do we get? We get uh, sort of deceased estates where the kids just want to get rid of it and they don't care. Um, you get other people that just go, look, we want our privacy. We don't want our neighbours to know we're selling. We're happy to run it as an off-market campaign and do it that way. So there's there's all sorts of different reasons why people sell off market um, I, I think it would be uh, it wouldn't be 
accurate to say you're going to get an absolute steal because you're buying off market. You might still be paying market value, but it gets you into the area that you'd want to be in with the type of property just without having to pay any sort of premium. Yeah, yeah, awesome. I was just really interested in the incentives of of the uh, vendor, why they would do that, but that makes sense if people are just not wanting people traipsing through their house or their their neighbours coming in and having a look at their their property, which which obviously fills some people with dread. You, you mentioned before um, about the sort of strategies, sort of the individual strategies of of the investor and how you're sort of tapping into what their potential goals are and that sort of thing. Um, we talked about sort of yield versus cash flow. Is there a sort of sweet spot where you can achieve both or, or is it by necessity that if you want the best potential cash flow then you have to suffer a low yield uh yeah or the stronger cash flow a little bit lower growth is, is yeah. that what you mean mike sorry yep yeah yeah so, definitely so... I, I don't think it comes hand in hand uh, but generally speaking the, the closer you get to a cbd area generally speaking your yields are going to be a bit tighter um we still see majority of the properties we're buying housing in close to CBD in Newcastle, Brisbane, we're still achieving north of a 4% rental yield, um, which is reasonable. But to get something that's cash flow neutral um, or cash flow positive, uh, it's a very, very difficult um, uh, uh, achievement. So uh, very difficult to achieve that. So you you would generally have to compromise on the quality of your asset if it's a single residential house uh, or unit you'd have to generally compromise on your area um, in order to get that better yield. So for instance, you could go to some lower socioeconomic areas where um, most people aren't owner-occupiers, they all rent. Um, So the value of property isn't being driven up by owner-occupiers wanting to be in there. So you'll find that the rental is going to be higher um, and so you're probably going to get a more neutral to positive cash flow. But at the same time, you do have an element of tenant risk um, in terms of the quality of tenant, can they afford to pay their rent, how much vacancy we're going to have, we're going to be a QCAT, all those sorts of things. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but um, definitely we do notice the closer you get to the city, um, in the more blue chip areas, you tend to find that the, because there's more owner occupiers there, um, you, you do tend to find that the prices move faster than the rental market does. Yeah, and they're paying a premium for that location, whereas I guess the demand for, for paying you know, $1,000 a, a week in rent is not necessarily as high. Yeah, and and we've also noticed, Mike, with our property managers, and, and it was news to me over the last few years because I've never done property management, uh, I see genuine value in a, in a quality service, but we've noticed properties that we would go through and buy for a client, we go, oh, it's beautiful. The the view that you get from this property is, is phenomenal. And the property manager goes, yeah, the view is amazing. A tenant's not going to pay a lot more than that, a lot more for right. that. They'll pay a little bit more, but not compared to the extra you're paying to get that view for the value of the property. Um, yeah, okay. So, yeah. Whereas an owner um, is going to take a different view because they've got a guarantee that they're there as long as they need to, whereas a tenant might be kicked out in 12 months because someone's moving back in or something like that. Is that the reason? Yeah, I, I think it's just because they know it's not theirs and at any, yeah, like you said, if they can get kicked out, well, they go, well, I'm not going to pay a premium for that because I could rent the same house down the road for $50 less or whatever and, and I just don't have quite as good of use. So it just doesn't seem to play into their psyche as much as it does for uh, owner-occupiers. Yeah, interesting. 
Look, uh, James, I really appreciate the, the time today and I wanted to, to sort of let people know how they can get in touch with you. What, what's the best way to reach you if any listeners have got uh, questions? Yeah, Mike, they, could, um, they can go to pmcproperty.com.au um, and, and put an inquiry through there or they can give me a call on my mobile uh, directly um, and, and, or drop me an email at james at pmcproperty.com.au. Awesome. And uh, just to finish off, James, if there's one piece of advice you can impart, and I know this is always this is always difficult, what what would it be? Um, probably the one piece of advice I'd give anyone investing in property, Mike, is really don't take a risk on your first property. Um, yep. If you're going to go and buy an investment property, try to make sure that the first one you buy, it's in a good quality area, very low risk, very low maintenance. Um, you can take big risks in the future if you've got something to fall back on, but if you yep. mess up your first investment, it can really cripple you financially for the rest of your life. So it's you've got to make sure you, if you're going to buy a property, don't take any risks on the first one. And if, generally speaking, the brochure looks too good to be true, it, it generally speaking is. Uh, yeah, it awesome. a lot of people from mining towns. So. Yeah, and I guess that amplifies the results, doesn't it? So if you have a great result on the first one, in 10 years' time, you're going to be in a much better position. But that, that, that first one is often that stumbling, stumbling block, isn't it? I mean, the stats are still saying that property investors are only owning one property on average. And you think that's, that's the reason, is that you know, people are not making an educated decision on that first one? Yeah, definitely. I think it, it, we see a lot of people that have bought properties in relatively random areas and they sort of come and go and look we've, we've now got these two properties in in areas that aren't really doing anything what do we do from here um and and yeah it, it's pretty tough to sort of get them out of that hole so uh i also think affordability obviously comes into it at the end of the day so don't stretch yourself too far i mean interest rates look wonderful right now but um what are they going to be in five to seven years time so make sure it's it's still going to be affordable for you as well exactly great advice james thanks very much for for joining us really appreciate it No, I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for your time. All the best. Cheers.